0: Chapter 4. Power Projection Tactics in Human Society Man cannot remake himself without suffering, for he is both the marble and the sculptor. Alex Carroll Section 4.1. Introduction So long as there are men, there will be wars. Albert Einstein Organisms fight and kill each other for their resources. This struggle is real and directly observable. But when evaluating human behavior, there are clear differences between the way sapiens behave and the way other organisms behave, particularly in the way they fight and kill each other for resources. Behaviorally, modern sapiens are unique in the animal kingdom in that they fight and kill each other not just for resources, but also for what they choose to believe in. They use their powerful brains to think abstractly, adopt belief systems that other organisms are physiologically incapable of perceiving, and then they physically compete over those belief systems at unrivaled scale. Ironically, amongst the most commonly adopted belief systems over which humans routinely fight and kill each other is the belief that people shouldn't have to fight for their resources, that sapiens and sapiens alone have natural rights to their lives, liberties, and properties which other animals don't have, and that humans are special exemptions to primordial phenomena like predation, entropy, and the existential necessity to establish dominance hierarchies using physical power it is not uncommon for modern humans to believe that the creator of life itself has placed them on some special pedestal above all other life forms on earth so they don't have to struggle the same as the rest of the life forms beneath them to settle their interspecies property disputes establish control authority over intraspecies resources, and determine the legitimate state of ownership and chain of custody of their property. In comparison to the rest of life on Earth, human power projection is both unique and bizarre. In this chapter, the author will break down to their core concepts around human power projection and physical conflict, and offer some explanations for why humans behave the way they do particularly how and why society is routinely compelled to fight and kill each other over their resources and their belief systems. The goal of this discussion is to build some conceptual insights about why humans fight wars, which will develop the conceptual foundation necessary for understanding why Bitcoin might be used not as a monetary technology, but as a soft, aka non-kinetic, form of war-fighting technology that literally empowers people to physically compete for their resources and for what they choose to believe in, but in a non-lethal way that doesn't harm others. Now that we have a foundational understanding about how and why organisms use physical power to settle intraspecies disputes and establish their dominance hierarchies, we can turn our attention to human beings. The remarkable thing to note about behaviorally modern sapiens is that they strive not to use physical power as the basis for settling their disputes and establishing their pecking order. Instead, they use their imaginations to conceive of abstract sources of power, and then they attempt to use these abstract sources of power to settle their disputes and establish their pecking order. These attempts often don't succeed hence the continual and inevitable reversions back to warfare. As much as humans wish they could cheat nature and establish their dominance hierarchies using something which transcends physics, they have yet to transcend warfare. They still rely on physical power to enforce, legitimize, or illegitimize abstract power. Ironically, despite how much they strive to avoid conflict, human infighting is the most physically destructive intraspecies competition on the planet. For some reason, no matter how much sapiens try not to use physical power to settle their disputes and establish their dominance hierarchies, they always resort back to the same primordial economic behavior as practically every other species in nature. Why is that? This chapter endeavors to explain why humans attempt to use abstract sources of power to settle their intraspecies disputes, establish their dominance hierarchies, determine who has control authority over their resources, and achieve consensus on the legitimate state and chain of custody of their property. The author begins by guiding the reader through a deep dive in human metacognition and abstract thinking. Once a baseline understanding in human metacognition has been established, the author explores the differences between abstract and physical power, how abstract power-based dominance hierarchies work, in comparison to the physical power-based resource control structures discussed in the previous chapters, and then offers some explanations for why they break down and lead humans back to war. The purpose of this chapter is to establish a thorough understanding of the root causes of warfare in order to develop the why behind emerging power projection technologies like Bitcoin. A key assertion of this thesis is that Bitcoin could theoretically serve as an extension of warfare for human society as it enters the digital age. Before introducing the concept of and entering into a discussion about the socio-technical and national strategic security implications of Bitcoin as a war-fighting protocol rather than strictly a monetary protocol, it's necessary to understand how and why wars break out in the first place. A word of warning, though. Warfare is a difficult and trans-scientific topic that is highly emotional and politically charged. It's impossible to know why all wars break out, but the author provides some viable explanations based off concepts that emerged from research. The point of doing this is to provide the reader with conceptual insights about why humans can't seem not to fight wars. In other words, the reader should leave this chapter with an understanding for why society's ostensibly peaceful alternatives to warfare Inevitably lead back to warfare. There is something about how humans attempt to settle intraspecies property disputes and establish pecking order that isn't working, that routinely breaks down and becomes dysfunctional. Humans keep having to return to the primordial economic behavior of fighting and killing each other to establish decentralized, zero trust, and permissionless control over their valuable resources. Once the reader understands why humans keep resorting to fighting and killing each other over resources like wild animals do, the author proceeds into a discussion about the dynamics of national strategic security. This leads to an exploration of how and why humans have scaled their physical power projection tactics to the point of mutually assured destruction, and why this situation represents a major systemic security hazard. The chapter concludes with a discussion about how humans would benefit from their own version of antlers, which would allow them to settle their disputes and establish their pecking order using non-kinetic, thus non-lethal, power projection tactics, techniques, and technologies. Human behavior could be described as ironic, because in their attempts to avoid intraspecies infighting and transcend uncivilized, physical power-based methods of resource control, they have become amongst the most physically destructive mammals on the planet. This chapter attempts to provide some explanations for why this destruction takes place, so that these concepts can be utilized later to explain the context about why people would be motivated to use Bitcoin as a war-fighting technology and how Bitcoin can help people mitigate warfare's destructive effects. Section 4.2. A Whole New World The true sign of intelligence is not knowledge, but imagination. Albert Einstein Section 4.2.1. Firepower Equals Computing Power Brain tissue requires about 20 times more power than muscle tissue. The most energy-consuming part of our brain is the modern part, the neocortex, which is used for higher-level processing and abstract thinking. For shrew-like mammals, the neocortex represents about 10% of total brain volume. The average mammal's brain volume is 40% neocortex. Primates have an above average neocortex volume of 50%. But even a primate's neocortex is small compared to anatomically modern humans. A staggering 80% of sapient brain volume is neocortex. This substantial difference is shown in Figure 32 comparison between a sapient brain and that of its closest surviving ancestor. Humans can afford to power their large neocortices because of the energy abundance they achieved by learning how to control fire. Humans unlock far more energy per unit of food consumed than other animals thanks to their ability to cook. Just like a staged combustion cycle on a modern rocket can unlock more energy for relatively little penalty in size, weight, and power, By using a pre-burner to combust fuel and oxidizer before it reaches the combustion chamber, humans operate the same way. By cooking their food, humans pre-burn their fuel as a form of pre-digestion before it reaches their combustion chamber, stomachs, allowing them to unlock substantially more energy per unit food with only a minor penalty to size, weight, and power. And just like how more energy allows a rocket to carry more payload on top of it, more energy allows a human to carry more payload on top of it, too. Humans enjoyed a step-function rise in surplus energy when they took control of fire, which they vectored towards performing the highly energy-intensive task of thinking. The brain represents only about 2% of a modern human's body weight, yet it consumes about 20% of its energy. Fortunately, humans became so rich in surplus energy that they were able to habitually overclock their neocortices to the point where it drove dramatic physiological changes, giving rise to the modern sapiens' massive neocortices and oddly bulbous heads. Learning how to control fire and gain access to exogenous energy caused sapient brains to grow so quickly that they outpaced the growth of their own pelvises and birth canals. Combined with their tendency to walk upright, these sudden anatomical changes cause sapiens to have far more complex and painful childbirths than other primates. Sapient heads are so large that they must be born approximately 50% prematurely with only partially assembled skulls and necks just to fit through their mother's birth canal. For this reason, sapiens are significantly more fragile and helpless at birth compared to other mammals, and they must go through a longer adolescent period to account for having to incubate outside the womb. But as the saying goes, the juice is worth the squeeze. A sapien's massive neocortex is the source of the most significant power projection technique observed on Earth. Section 4.2.2 Using Imagination to Create a Virtual Reality Anatomically modern sapiens and their absurdly large foreheads shown in Figure 33, an anatomically modern homo sapien with its characteristically large forehead. Emerged from Africa at least 200 to 300,000 years ago and expanded into Europe as the ice melted. Despite their physiological similarities, sapiens don't appear to have behaved like the ones today until the Upper Paleolithic era started around 50,000 years ago. This is when the fossil record first starts showing signs of sapiens having a higher degree of intentionality and theory of mind required for the highly self-consciousness behavior of modern humans, a phenomenon often called behavioral modernity. It was during this time frame when sapiens started tracing their hands on cave walls and signaling extraordinarily high levels of self-consciousness compared to other animals. They started making distinctions between themselves and their environment, with both objective and abstract qualities. It's unclear what exactly caused human consciousness to spark, but when it did, it appears to have spread quickly. Charles Foster describes the change as follows. Something tectonic happened to human consciousness in the Upper Paleolithic, whether by revolution or revelation or evolution. A new type of consciousness emerged, out of or in addition to or in substitution for The consciousness that had been there before. For however long it had been gestating, a new type of self perception and self understanding had burst. It was manifested in a new symbolic sense, so much better at expressing itself that it looked different in kind or degree from anything that had existed before. It should be noted that sapiens are first and foremost hunter gathering nomads having spent only the last 5% of their history on Earth doing anything except traveling the world searching for fauna and flora to eat. Their overclocked, overpowered, and oversized neocortices are especially useful for these activities because they help their hosts perform advanced pattern finding. The ability to connect dots between sensory input information enhances Sapien's ability to detect and exploit patterns of behavior in surrounding fauna and flora for improved hunting and gathering. The advanced dot-connecting and pattern-finding capability of a brain is colloquially known as intelligence. The more an animal can use their brain to connect dots between their sensory inputs or detect valid patterns of behavior within their environment, the more intelligent the animal is perceived to be. Not surprisingly, with 80% of their brain volume comprised of advanced pattern-finding neocortex hardware fueled by excess energy and firepower, modern sapient brains are the most intelligent on Earth. Sapient brains are so effortlessly good at dot-connecting and pattern-finding that they don't even need physical sensory inputs to detect patterns. It is possible to put a behaviorally modern human in a dark, empty, sound-dead room, and their brain will have no trouble envisioning many sights, sounds, and objects. They will connect dots between sensory inputs and detect patterns which don't physically exist. This remarkable capability is known as abstract thinking. Imagination could be described as the phenomenon which occurs when human neocortices use their abstract thinking skills to form ideas, images, or concepts independently and without physical sensory inputs. This thesis uses the term imaginary to describe phenomena detected by human brains which don't physically exist in shared objective reality. Imaginary patterns can occur either due to a false correlation to physical sensory inputs or because the pattern was formed without sensory inputs in the first place. The author acknowledges there are detailed fields of philosophy with far more detailed and varying definitions of imaginary. This is how the author will use the term throughout this thesis. Because of their ability to think abstractly and find imaginary patterns, sapiens operate in two different realities simultaneously, one in front of their eyes and one behind them as shown in figure 34, illustration of the bidirectional nature of abstract thinking. The author defines the concrete reality in front of a human's eyes as objective physical reality, the domain of energy, matter, space, and time, which precedes humans and produces our physical, sensory inputs. This reality is shared by all humans regardless of whether they can detect or conceive of it. Moreover, physically objective reality exists in and of itself, although sapiens technically can't process it objectively without the abstract biases caused by their own brains. The reality behind a human's eyes can be defined as subjective abstract reality a non-physical domain constructed out of the abstract thoughts of sapient neocortices and filled with imaginary patterns like symbols and semantic meaning. This reality can either be exclusive to one human mind, or it can be combined with other human minds. This abstract reality can either be an individual reality, or it can be a shared reality where the latter occurs when sapiens get other people to see and believe in the same abstract reality together. No other species on Earth appears to be as capable of perceiving abstract reality as sapiens. It is possible that other animals simply aren't physically capable of it because they don't have enough brain power and neurological circuitry needed to think of abstract reality. For the purposes of this thesis, abstract reality is defined as a new, imaginary world that recently emerged within the last 0.001% of life's total time on Earth. Abstract reality seems unique to humans, the only animal to have survived the evolutionary journey and prospered enough to have the capacity to think of it. The author acknowledges there are detailed fields of philosophy, theology, ideology, phenomenology, and metaphysics, with far more detailed and varying definitions of these terms. This is how the author will use the term throughout this thesis. Juggling these two realities at the same time is quite an energy-intensive burden for human brains to bear. So to make it more efficient, sapiens show extreme favoritism towards their subjective, abstract and imaginary reality. Then, they superimpose their abstract and imaginary beliefs onto sensory inputs seen, smelled, tasted, touched, and heard from objective physical reality. Brains appear to have no way of knowing if a detected pattern is anything but abstract when it's first generated so they rely on their hosts to cross-reference their abstract thoughts against physical sensory inputs to determine if the imaginary pattern is a physically real pattern. More on this in the next section. The way human brains think is noteworthy for two reasons. First, it suggests humans experience the world foremost through their imaginations, then determine what is real based off what imaginary patterns happen to correspond to matching sensory inputs. Second, it suggests sapiens use abstract thinking in both directions of data processing, for dual purposes. Brains process physical inputs from objective physical reality at the same time they generate abstract beliefs about physical reality for the senses to investigate. These two separate tasks occur simultaneously, all the time. Human minds produce a mental model of the world which influences the way they think, act, and perceive the information they receive back from their senses. Brains therefore act like a lens through which sapiens understand the world in abstract reality, while simultaneously acting as the mechanism through which they shape the world in objective reality. This bidirectional feedback and dual-use type of abstract thinking, where the brain's imagination influences the processing of its physical sensory data inputs as well as its outputs, appears to be the key enabling skill set required for a phenomenon called symbolism. The author acknowledges there are detailed fields of psychology with far more detailed and varying definitions of symbolism. This is how the author will use the term throughout this thesis. Humans are so skilled at using their habitually over-energized brains to perform bi-directional and dual-use abstract thinking that it happens automatically without being conscious of it. It appears to be extraordinarily difficult for humans to turn off this behavior unless the brain becomes physically damaged or chemically impaired. It's practically impossible for humans not to distort their senses with their abstract thoughts or act purely off experiential knowledge. In other words, knowledge gained based exclusively off sensory inputs without biasing those inputs with our own subjective and abstract thoughts. Ironically, humans can't do what other animals can do effortlessly. Experience objective physical reality for what it is, without skewing sensory inputs through a neocortical lens of abstract biases. Whereas most non-human species can't perceive symbols and abstract meaning in the first place, sapiens can't not perceive symbolic patterns and abstract meaning, once a given pattern has been committed to memory. The reader is invited to test this out. Try to look at this page without detecting symbols like letters and words. Or, try to listen to someone produce the audible wave pattern of your name without detecting that abstract concept called your name. Most people find this to be impossible except for people drugged, brain damaged, or experiencing severe memory loss. Another way to show how difficult it is to not think symbolically is to look at figure 35 illustration of how practically impossible it is to not think symbolically. The blue and black scribbles drawn above and below the gray dashed line are identical in every way except for their topology. Simply change their topology and, like magic, a bunch of nonsensical and objectively meaningless scribbles suddenly turn into something with rich symbolic meaning even though the only thing that changed was the topology of the scribbles. If you don't see the same objectively meaningless scribbles above and below the gray line, then you are guilty of applying abstract symbolic meaning to something that is objectively meaningless. Technically speaking, the scribbles drawn above and below the dashed line are equally meaningless but you can't see it that way because you've committed the topological patterns below the gray dashed line to memory as symbols denoting semantically and syntactically complex abstract meaning. That's how gifted sapien brains are at abstract thinking. You don't even have to try, and you can't turn it off. You are a slave to your neocortex, incapable of not perceiving symbolic patterns and imaginary meaning which directly interfere with how you process physical sensory inputs and how you perceive the shared objective physical reality we're living in. Section 4.3. How to detect if something is real. We suffer more often in imagination than in reality. Lucius Aeneas Seneca. Section 4.3.1. Sapiens Struggle to Detect What's Real There are dedicated fields of knowledge like psychology, phenomenology, and metaphysics devoted to the subject of understanding what real means. It turns out, real is a surprisingly difficult thing for sapiens to define because, as demonstrated in the previous example, Our objective, sensory inputs are tainted by the subjective, abstract thoughts and interpretations of our big, fat, overpowered, hyperactive, and overclocked brains. Sapiens are effectively trapped behind a neocortical cage, unable to interpret the world objectively for what it is, without skewing it with imaginary meaning and symbolism. This makes it exceptionally difficult to know what real is. Therefore, for the sake of producing a simple argument, this thesis uses the word real as a synonym for physical, and the terms imaginary or abstract as synonyms for non-physical. The author acknowledges that what we call physics is technically an experiential process mediated by the brain's abstractions and therefore not mutually exclusive to, or divisible from, abstract thoughts. However, for lack of better words to describe ontologically precedent, exogenous, and distinct phenomena like time, mass, space, and energy, which predate sapiens by nearly 4 billion years, This is how the author will use the term real throughout the remainder of this thesis. Real things, according to the author, are categorized as things which produce their own physical signature in the domain of shared objective physical reality, as best as we currently understand what that means. On the contrary, imaginary things can be categorized as things which aren't real and therefore don't produce their own physical signature in the domain of shared objective physical reality. The author understands that subject matter experts in the fields of knowledge devoted to studying what real means don't make this same non-physical versus physical distinction. He apologizes in advance to professional philosophers for an engineer's bias towards physics and asks for temporary indulgence for the sake of illustrating a point. A human brain's advanced bidirectional and dual-use abstract processing is done automatically and subconsciously, without requiring control inputs from a human host. Imaginary patterns are produced up front, then cross-referenced with sensory inputs received from shared objective reality, to determine if a given pattern is real or unreal. This processing logic can be modeled in figure 36 below, model of a realness verification algorithm performed by sapient brains. Because of the physical constraints associated with receiving sensory inputs, namely the fact that a human can't be everywhere, and see, smell, touch, taste, and hear everything all the time it's far easier for the brain to produce imaginary patterns than it is for the brain to physically verify them by cross-referencing them with the body's sensory inputs. The former only requires imaginary or symbolically gained knowledge, for example, knowledge gained from activities like thinking or reading or looking at a computer screen, whereas the latter requires experiential knowledge for example, knowledge gained by collecting physical signals through the body's sensory organs. This is an important distinction to make because it means a strong majority of what humans think they know hasn't been physically verified or cross-referenced by their own sensory organs. Additionally, this algorithm is fully automated and subconscious, so sapiens are often not even aware of the fact that they do it. In other words, most of what sapiens know about the world is derived completely from symbolism and the imagination, not from what they can directly, physically experience through their senses, and they commonly don't realize there's even a difference between these two different types of knowledge. Most people get their information about the world from interpretations presented on TV screens or computer screens, in other words, symbolic knowledge rather than from actually experiencing the world firsthand, In other words, experiential knowledge. Note how the term first-hand implies that information gained or learned directly must directly come from physical sensory organs like hands. So much of what sapiens experience is imaginary compared to what they can physically validate using sensory inputs so they simply forget the fact that much of what they believe is physically unverified. This would explain why it's so easy for sapiens to be psychologically manipulated. It's easy to lose sight of the difference between objective reality and abstract reality without devoting a non-trivial amount of brain power towards understanding metacognition. It should therefore come as no surprise That sapient brains produce a lot of false positive beliefs about objective reality which go completely undetected. The way sapiens think appears to be a highly effective survival tactic. Humans may be trapped behind a cage of symbolism from which they can't escape, but the disadvantages of being stuck behind a prefrontal cortex where no conscious distinction is made between real, physical, And imaginary, non-physical things is offset by some major advantages of abstract thinking. One advantage of abstract thinking is that it helps people with advanced pattern finding and detecting threats. As an example, consider a human walking through the woods. If the eyes detect some sticks, the sapient brain can utilize its advanced pattern finding and abstract thinking skills to produce an imaginary image of a snake. Because the imaginary image of a snake can be cross-referenced to a visual input of sticks gained from physical reality, the brain can produce a false correlation about realness, as illustrated in Figure 37, false positive correlation produced by the brain's realness verification algorithm. Unaware of the fact that the snake isn't real, the brain's host will take quick and decisive maneuvers to avoid what could be a serious threat. This example illustrates a scenario where the brain's realness verification algorithm produced a false positive correlation. It turns out, false positive correlations about the realness of imaginary patterns are useful in a dangerous world filled with predators because it results in a tendency to err on the side of caution. It's better for survival to produce false positive beliefs about the realness of a threat than to fail to detect a true threat. Because of this instinctive programming, even when sapiens are metacognitively aware of the fact that they can't verify what they are experiencing is something physically real, they will still weigh it highly or even more important than what their sensory inputs can physically verify. Likewise, Even when sapiens are metacognitively aware of the fact that the source of the sensory input isn't the same as the abstract input, they will still falsely correlate to it. This is one of the reasons why it's so easy to scare people using fictional stories like horror movies. Even when we consciously know that the threat isn't real because it's on a movie screen, we can still feel afraid about what we witness for days after watching a scary movie. This phenomenon also explains why large populations are quick to believe that high-ranking people, for example, monarchs, presidents, etc., are powerful people. We falsely correlate the abstract or symbolic power exercised by a king to the real or physical power exercised by the king's army. Much more on this in the following sections. The bottom line is, it's simply more efficient and easier on the brain to assume imaginary things are real because it saves a substantial amount of energy-intensive thinking power, and because it results in false-positive correlations which are beneficial for survival. Recalling the lesson on survivorship bias from chapter 3, It is reasonable to believe there were plenty of early brains which weren't as instinctively inclined to favor abstract inputs over sensory inputs, or quick to produce false positive beliefs about the realness of imaginary patterns. However, their resulting lack of producing false positive beliefs would have made their hosts more complacent, less cautious, and less responsive to genuine threats. In other words, they were less likely to survive. Therefore, the reasons why humans constantly struggle to distinguish between imaginary things versus real things could simply be explained by natural selection. The tendency to believe in imaginary things leads to a higher probability of surviving real threats and consequently passing on one's genes. Fast forward over hundreds of thousands of years, And here we are today, routinely making false positive correlations between real and imaginary things, because that's what survives. Sapiens have so much thinking power and are so inclined to believe imaginary things are real that they behave unlike any other animal on earth. They strongly and passionately believe in things they have never seen, smelled, heard, tasted, or touched. They act, react, and show extreme favoritism towards symbols, and operate either oblivious to or consciously unconcerned with the difference between abstract things and physical things. They will respond to stimuli which exist nowhere except within their imagination, more often and far more passionately than information received by their sensory inputs from physically objective reality. They will ignore their experiential knowledge altogether and act strictly according to symbolic knowledge, often not even aware of the fact that they're doing it. They will stop paying attention to the fact that they're sitting down and doing practically nothing because they are entranced in an abstract world spoken or written into existence by a stranger using a complex written language. If you are reading this, look around for a second and realize that you're just sitting still, doing nothing but staring at symbols. Sapiens, unlike any other animal, can and will subject themselves to a great deal of struggle, suffering, and personal sacrifice for reasons which don't exist anywhere except within their collective imaginations. They will adopt belief systems and participate in population-scale consensual hallucinations grateful for the opportunity to labor their entire lives over imaginary things, and even to die for them. This is a defining feature of the human experience. Section 4.3.2 Proof of Power is Proof of Real pinch me because I must be dreaming. Origin Unknown We have now established that sapient neocortices are so effortlessly skilled at abstract thinking that sapiens struggle to know what real is and, thanks to natural selection, they constantly make false positive correlations between imaginary things and real things. Because of this, humans need workarounds or protocols they can use to help them distinguish between imaginary things and real things. For situations where sapiens struggle to distinguish between real and imaginary and desire to know if what they are experiencing is real, many subscribe to an adaptation of the realness verification protocol illustrated in figure 38 the poking-pinching realness verification protocol. Whenever sapiens wonder or doubt if an object is physically real or not, the commonly accepted protocol is to attempt to manually generate the physical sensory inputs needed to cross-reference the brain's abstract input with a physical sensory input. A common way of doing this is by poking or pinching something to generate haptic feedback for touch sensory organs. It's a simple and effective protocol. Not sure if an object is real? Try poking it. Not sure if an experience is real? Try pinching yourself. Pinching is especially useful during special occasions when the neocortex is busy producing very convincing imaginary patterns, but the host is deprived of the physical sensory inputs from objective physical reality it needs to cross-reference inputs and attempt to validate realness. This often happens when a human is sleeping or when operating in a dream-like environment like cyberspace. Hence why haptic feedback systems are popular, such as vibrating video game controllers. Note how the act of poking or pinching something involves the application of force to displace mass. If the object is real, then a human knows from experience, and from reading Newton, that an equal and opposite force will displace the mass of their hand. Likewise, if the event is real then the force used to pinch the skin will cause neuroreceptors to detect the displacement. What the brain is doing in these situations is manually generating the sensory inputs needed to cross-reference its abstract thoughts with physical sensory inputs to help make it easier to decide if an object or event is real. Here, the reader should note how this protocol requires physical power to work. What's another name for the displacement of mass with force? Power. Therefore, what's another name for the act of using power to prove that something is real? Proof of power. When a human pokes or pinches something, they apply a force to a mass over time and displace it across space. In other words, they're projecting physical power. Why is projecting power in this way useful? Because power is comprised of the concrete phenomenon of objective physical reality, energy, mass, time, and space. It is impossible to kinetically project power without these phenomena, so a proof-of-power protocol like poking or pinching doubles as a one-stop objective reality verification shop for the sapient brain. If a human can generate proof of power, then they can take comfort in knowing that the concrete phenomena of shared objective reality, energy, mass, time, and space, are present and accounted for within the context of what they're experiencing, helping their mind reach a quicker conclusion about what's real. The purpose of this section is to illustrate yet another reason why physical power is useful, and to demonstrate yet another application for the proof-of-power protocol. Not only is proof-of-power necessary for survival and helpful for wild animals seeking to establish dominance hierarchies, it's also essential for helping sapiens, creatures who are trapped behind their abstract thoughts, determine what is and isn't real. When we factor in sapient metacognition, and the processes our brains use to cross-reference abstract thoughts with sensory inputs, we can see that proof of power doubles as proof of physical reality. Without the ability to detect the presence of physical power using protocols like poking or pinching, it's much harder for people to be confident that what they're experiencing is real or not. Trapped in an inescapable and imaginary world behind their eyes and continuously spammed by abstract thoughts produced by an overpowered, oversized, and overclocked neocortex, proof of power serves as a reliable signal for the human brain to identify what is physically and objectively real in an otherwise imaginary world. Physical power is like the North Star for our brains. It helps us navigate across an ocean of imaginary thoughts to get to what's true. Without being able to manually generate a physical power signal for the purpose of cross-referencing abstract thoughts with sensory inputs, a human cannot verify if what they see and hear physically exists, or if it's just another one of a countless series of abstract beliefs produced by their hyperactive imagination. Imprisoned by our own abstract thinking, physical power is a lifeline. We almost desperately rely on physical power signals to know what's real. What does this have to do with Bitcoin? The bottom line up front is that cyberspace is an imaginary reality. Virtual reality is, by definition, not physical reality. Cyberspace is nothing but abstract, symbolic meaning applied to the combined state-space of all the state mechanisms connected to each other via the internet. Operating online is akin to being in a dream state. It's a shared, abstract medium through which people in physical reality communicate. But until the invention of -of proof-of-work protocols like Bitcoin cyberspace was missing something, an open-source decentralized proof-of-power protocol. People who operate in, from, and through cyberspace have no way to cross-reference the imaginary things they experience online with a genuine proof-of-power signal that they can use to validate if something is real or not. As will be discussed in the next chapter, Bitcoin appears to fix this by creating a proof-of-power signal to serve as a proof-of-real signal. Section 4.4 Evolution of Abstract Thinking Symbolism begets symbolism. Once you're locked into the synergy, it's hard to stop it from building a whole new world. Charles Foster Section 4.4.1 Applications of abstract thinking. In comparison to the timescale of evolution, human abstract thinking became very advanced very quickly. Humans started using their massive neocortices for advanced pattern finding to enhance their hunting and gathering activities. The ability to detect and exploit patterns is very useful for learning the behavior of surrounding fauna and flora. Sapiens also benefited from the ability to produce false positive patterns because it made them exercise more caution and increase the probability of detecting true threats. Another benefit to be gained from bidirectional abstract thinking is that it allows the imagination to influence the processing of the brain's sensory inputs, leading to the phenomena called symbolism. Thanks to symbolism, humans can produce and detect meaning from otherwise objectively meaningless sensory input data. The author has just described three of ten applications of abstract thinking mastered by sapiens over the past 50,000 years. 1. Advanced pattern finding 2. Exercising caution and 3. Symbolism A complete list of 10 applications of abstract thinking discussed in this chapter is listed in Table 1 below. Table 1. Applications of Abstract Thinking Applications and Descriptions 1. Advanced Pattern Finding Patching up experiential knowledge gaps about shared objective physical reality using abstract thoughts and hypotheses. 2. Exercising caution. Producing false positive imaginary beliefs about threats to improve probability of survival. 3. Symbolism. Assigning imaginary abstract meaning to patterns observed in shared objective reality. 4. Planning and strategizing. Producing abstract simulations to forecast future scenarios within the safety and comfort of one's own mind. 5. Semantically and syntactically complex language Developing semantically and syntactically complex languages as a medium to exchange symbolically meaningful, conceptually dense, mathematically discrete, and precise information. 6. Storytelling Leveraging abstract thinking, imagination, and high-order language to construct virtual realities to share with other humans for advanced relationship-building, knowledge-sharing, entertainment, and vicarious experience. 7. Solving Physically Unverifiable Mysteries Explaining phenomenon impossible to objectively know or understand via physical-sensory inputs most notably, what happens after death. 8. Developing abstract constructs and belief systems. Constructing theological, philosophical, and ideological constructs to explain, justify, or shape sapient norms of behavior. 9. Creating and wielding abstract power. Creating abstract power and control authority over sapiens as a non-energy-intensive and non-injurious surrogate to using physical power as the basis for settling disputes, establishing control authority over resources, and achieving consensus on the legitimate state of ownership and chain of custody of property. 10. Encoding Abstract Power Hierarchies Formally codifying via spoken or written language, belief systems where people with imaginary or reified abstract power are organized into hierarchies. Section 4.4.2 Abstract Thinking Application Number 4 Planning and Strategizing Sapiens learned how to use their imaginations to improve their hunting capabilities by performing a special type of abstract thinking called planning. Driven by the need to develop better hunting strategies to take down far more physically powerful pack animal species with a high cost of attack and low BCRA, sapiens started using their overclocked and oversized brains to do something their prey couldn't, build hypothetical hunting simulations and test out strategies from the safety of their own minds. Using imagination, humans learned how to render highly complex scenarios about the future that were not coupled to their sensory inputs or directly linked to any concrete experiential knowledge within shared objective physical reality. They could run multiple hunting simulations which never occurred and fill them with people, animals, objects, and environmental conditions that didn't physically exist. They could down-select their best hunting strategies, test them in real-world operational environments, and use the experiential knowledge as feedback to train their mental models and make more realistic hunting simulations. Perhaps even more impressively, sapiens learned how to communicate and share these hunting simulations with their peers, creating shared abstract realities, also known as virtual realities filled with hunters and prey which don't exist anywhere except within their collective imaginations. This is the process through which sapiens mastered the primordial economic dynamics of hunting and became the world's peak predator. The primordial economic dynamics of hunting is illustrated in figure 39, Primordial Economic Dynamics of Hunting. Thanks to their big brains humans were able to develop strategies which enabled them to increase the BCRA of their targets by reducing their cost of attack. Gradually, over time, humans learned that the hunter's job is not merely to kill a target, but to prep the target for the kill over time by reducing its cost of attack. Over thousands of years of planning, strategizing, and testing imaginary hunting scenarios through real-world trial and error, humans mastered the art of prepping their target for the kill by reducing their cost of attack, using tactics like increasing standoff distance or taking advantage of the topography of the local environment. For example, instead of trying to take on a powerful herd of caribou in an open field, like a pride of lions would try to take on a herd of wildebeest, humans took advantage of their advanced pattern-finding capabilities to study the migration behavior of caribou, predict what paths they would take, and find the ideal spot along that path where their cost of attack is lowest to ambush them. This tactic is illustrated in Figure 40, illustration of a hunting strategy mastered by humans. A herd of caribou is quite powerful and can impose a lot of physical cost on attackers in an open field. This area is marked in figure 40 as the high cost of attack zone. But caribou can't impose severe physical costs on attackers as effectively when they're wedged in the bottom of a canyon with spears raining down on them. This area is marked in figure 40 as the low cost of attack zone. Thus. An effective hunting strategy for increasing the BCRA of a herd of caribou is to predict their migration patterns and find a spot where their cost of attack is the lowest due to the topography of the environment, then simply wait for them to get there. To that end, humans can park themselves at the top of a canyon and wait for the caribou to arrive. Once they do, They can throw spears down on them from a safe standoff distance where their capacity to impose severe physical costs on their attackers is rendered useless or ineffective. While there are many peak predators intelligent enough to employ similar hunting capabilities, no surviving animal appears to be as skilled at hunting as humans are. Hunting strategies like this require lots of abstract thinking because humans must use their imaginations to predict their prey's behavior and intentions this type of abstract thinking is what's known as intentionality or theory of mind and sapiens are extraordinarily good at it in fact one of the most defining characteristics of behaviorally modern sapiens is that they have a remarkably high order of intentionality and theory of mind simply put modern sapiens can predict and understand the thoughts and intentions of other brains remarkably well. The more thoughts and intentions one can predict, the higher order of intentionality they are said to have, but the more cognitively demanding it is to make those predictions. Fortunately, because sapiens evolved much better thought-processing hardware They have become much better at predicting the mental states of other creatures and therefore have much higher orders of intentionality and much higher degrees of theory of mind. Another way to think about this is that human brains are so large and powerful that they have enough spare thought processing margin left over to dedicate towards thinking as their neighbors. Not surprisingly, this makes the hosts of sapient brains exceptionally talented at hunting, despite how weak their bodies are in comparison to the animals they frequently hunt. Sapiens have driven dozens of gigantic species to extinction not by projecting more physical power than them, although the ability to wield fire clearly helped, but by outthinking them. A simple way to think about the strategic advantages of high-order intentionality is that it makes sapiens way better mind-readers than any other species on Earth. Because they're better mind-readers, that makes sapiens better hunters. What sapiens lack in physical strength, they make up for ten times over with intelligence, specifically their ability to predict what neighboring organisms are going to think and do long before they think and do them. Animals often find themselves helpless against humans despite being far more physically powerful. This is because fighting a human is like fighting a Jedi. Humans are extremely talented at predicting what's going to happen before it happens and placing themselves in exactly the right position they need to be in order to defeat their opponent. In a very short amount of time on Earth, sapiens have proven that advanced pattern finding combined with planning and strategizing using higher-order intentionality and theory of mind, is an extraordinarily effective power-projection tactic. Between their ability to wield fire and their ability to effectively read their prey's minds by thinking like their prey, sapiens quickly became one of the world's most lethal predators, despite being comparatively unathletic. Section 4.4.3 Abstract Thinking Application number 5 Semantically and Syntactically Complex Language As sapiens further honed their abstract thinking skills, they graduated from imagining highly realistic hunting simulations to imagining all sorts of other abstract realities. Their overclocked and hyperactive neocortices started to assign abstract meaning to recurring patterns in their campfires and in the stars above their heads. They started using abstract thinking not just to connect dots and fill gaps in experiential knowledge, but also to account for phenomenon they can't physically verify using sensory inputs, most notably what happens after death. Perhaps the most disruptive application of abstract thinking to emerge after planning and strategizing was semantically and syntactically complex high-order language. High-order language enabled humans to share their individually imagined abstract realities together much more easily. This allowed them to synchronize their imaginary thoughts together and create large-scale shared abstract realities. Before discussing high-order language, it's important for the reader to note that sapiens were well-equipped with rudimentary forms of language long before they learned how to use symbolism to produce semantically and syntactically complex language. Humans communicate the same way other mammals do, in ways that far predate words and grammar. And to many people's surprise, these instinctive communication protocols foster far deeper connections and bonding. Humans groom each other, dance, laugh, sing, and howl with each other. They adjust their size and posture, make gestures with their appendages, beat their chests, stomp their feet, squint their faces, and use many other communication techniques that other mammals use. It is not uncommon to see animals of different classes for example, mammals and birds, communicate friendship or bonding exactly the same way via cuddling or grooming, or with very similar body language. This is why humans communicate their trust and affection for each other, and for their pets, by cuddling or petting them. This is simply a common language between many species, especially mammals. On the opposite side of the communication spectrum, is how animals signal pain, sadness, and suffering the same way. This topic is uncomfortable but relevant to discussions about human-on-human killing and why humans adopt belief systems to try to avoid killing. Mammals, for example, narrow their eyes and grimace the same, wince the same, and scream and whimper the same. This isn't a coincidence. It's a communication protocol. Biologists have argued that this instinctive form of communication, combined with having enough high-order intentionality and theory of mind to empathize, is why humans often struggle to kill other mammals who are equipped with eyelids and vocal cords, and who use them to communicate pain and suffering the same way humans do. Yet, the same human who would never want to hurt a mammal will have no problem impaling, disemboweling, crushing, burning, electrocuting, or boiling fish, shellfish, or insects alive. One explanation for why this happens is because these different classes of animals have evolved different communication protocols, and, unfortunately for bugs, fish, and shellfish, they don't communicate pain, sadness, and suffering the same way humans do so humans don't get the message. As illustrated in figure 41, example of a fish communication protocol, if fish had eyelids or contortable muscles in their faces to communicate pain the same way mammals do, the experience of fishing would probably be much different for sapiens than it is today. Imagine what fishing would be like if fish screamed and howled. This same phenomenon is believed to be the reason why domesticated wolves, also known as dogs, have more prominent unpigmented sclera, in other words, show more of the white portion of their eyes, and special muscles around their eyes capable of making sad expressions which appeal to their human masters. So-called puppy-dog eyes are argued to be an evolutionary phenomenon which helped dogs communicate to humans in ways that we're more intuitively capable of understanding, particularly their sadness, pain, suffering, and desires. Some argue that the cuteness of dog eyes is a defense mechanism against the cruelty of their masters, and one of several reasons why the kinder-looking, sadder-looking, or more pitiful-looking dogs expressions that humans might condescendingly call adorable, have survived as human pets. Both anthropologists and biologists have theorized that these different methods of communication between animal classes explain the double standard in predatory human behavior. Humans are simply less capable of understanding that fish and insects are experiencing pain and suffering. The study of fish and insect neurons have shown they are capable of nociception, detection of pain, and that they react the same way mammals do when they encounter extreme heat, cold, or other harmful stimuli. But these organisms lack the eyelids, vocal cords, and other musculature needed to grimace and howl to communicate their pain and suffering the same way most mammals do so humans are naturally less reserved about harming them than they would about harming mammals which communicate pain and suffering the same way humans do. This small change in how different classes of animal evolved to communicate differently leads to dramatically different emergent behavior. In addition to being able to communicate happiness or suffering using common languages between mammals, Sapiens also have a base layer common language specific to the species. For example, all sapiens smile, laugh, and sing exactly the same way, regardless of where they're born. Human children born deaf and blind, who have never seen or heard other people smile or laugh, will smile and laugh the exact same way other humans do. Sapiens also instinctively communicate with others who have immature or undeveloped brains the same way, using a sing-song pattern of wider spectrum and varying pitch known as infant-directed speech, or baby talk. This is why humans baby talk to their babies, pets, elderly, or mentally handicapped people regardless of their culture. Humans instinctively recognize they're having underdeveloped brains and have a common base-layer communication protocol for it. This also explains why people feel comforted when they hear other people baby talk. It's an instinctive communication protocol that connects humans on a far deeper level than modern spoken or written languages. These communication techniques are purely instinctive. They're natural patterns of behavior passed on via genetics. This means sapiens actually communicate the same way, and more meaningfully, regardless of what higher-order languages they use. By singing, dancing, laughing, grooming, and baby-talking with each other, it is possible to form deep, emotionally satisfying connections with strangers or people who can't speak or write the same higher-order language. Hence the romantic stories about strangers from different worlds who speak different languages but still find deep emotional connections with each other. For these reasons, it's not uncommon for people to be more emotionally attached and affectionate with their pets than with their friends and extended family members. The loss of a pet can be as emotionally traumatic as the loss of a family member because animals, mammals especially, Bond the same way sapiens do without the need for symbolism, semantics, syntactics, and higher-order language. The point is that spoken and written languages are not nearly as important for human-on-human communication and bonding as people think they are. Humans communicate the majority of their feelings using body language and in other unconscious techniques and then rely on semantically and syntactically complex spoken or written languages to fill in the symbolically complex or mathematically discrete portions of their thoughts. The main takeaway of this exploration of human communication is to illustrate that the primary value-delivered function of higher-order spoken or written language is not to emotionally connect with each other, because there are far more effective ways to do that than by using semantically and syntactically complex language. Instead, the primary value-delivered function of higher-order language appears to be to formally encode thoughts and emotions. Higher-order language is optimized for the transfer of facts and more precise descriptions of what people think and feel. This lets people synchronize their thoughts and emotions more precisely. Using spoken or written language, sapiens can effectively peer into the mind of other sapiens with much more precision and symbolic detail than other species can, thus filling each other's minds with detailed descriptions of their thoughts and ideas. Large and overpowered neocortices, it turns out, are perfect vessels for the transfer of symbolically complex and mathematically precise thoughts. Large neocortices enable sapiens to construct higher-order languages by transmitting, receiving, and processing complex audible and visual patterns and converting them into abstract thoughts rich with symbolic meaning and syntactic precision. Once sapient brains became effortlessly gifted at symbolism, people quickly developed a habit of assigning symbolic meaning to commonly detectable audible and visual patterns to create morphemes, the smallest meaningfully lexical items used in higher-order language. Then, over time, this process of assigning symbolic meaning to otherwise meaningless audible and visual patterns became increasingly more complex, until the nature of the meaning assigned to various lexical items could be changed based off their composition, in a process we call semantics. Eventually, humans learned how to combine various symbols with different semantic meaning into structured units of discourse called words, then further combined them into mathematically discrete structures like phrases, sentences, and grammar, in a process we call syntactics. To this day, practically all high-order languages, including and especially the languages we use to program our computers, are composed of these same two components. Shapes and sounds are imbued with abstract and symbolic meaning, semantics, and then combined into some type of mathematically discrete and formal structure, syntactics giving rise to the semantically and syntactically complex languages we use to convey all of our symbolically and structurally complex thoughts and ideas. We know this type of communication is not necessary for survival or bonding because humans have spent most of their existence surviving and bonding without it. Nevertheless, high-order language is extremely useful as a medium of exchange for conceptually dense and mathematically discrete information, through which people can collectively share their individual thoughts and ideas. Consequently, high-order language makes it possible to create a single, shared consciousness out of individual minds. As will be discussed in the following chapter, the pinnacle of humans using symbolism To assign semantically and syntactically complex meaning to physical phenomena in order to connect their neocortices together to form a single, shared consciousness is machine code. Using techniques like Boolean logic, sapiens have learned how to convert practically any physical, state-changing phenomenon into symbolically and structurally complex information That can be stored on machines and transferred to people through their machines. Machine code has very quickly emerged as the crown jewel of higher order semantically and syntactically complex language. This remarkable application of abstract thinking and high order communication is more commonly known as the Internet. A clear limitation of higher order language is that it only works for people who have taken the time to memorize the semantic meaning and syntactic structure of the communication protocol. Whereas it takes no effort to learn how to communicate with strangers by singing, laughing, and baby-talking, higher-order languages take years, even decades, to learn. Sapiens can, and often, go their entire lives with nothing more than a shallow appreciation of the semantic and syntactic depth of the language protocols they learn. This is perhaps because higher-order language is merely a means to an end, not an end in and of itself. Most sapiens don't learn higher-order language for the sake of knowing the semantic and syntactic details of the language. They learn it for the sake of peering into the minds of other sapiens and connecting abstract realities together through a process called storytelling. Section 4.4.4 4. 4. 4, Abstract Thinking Application Number 6 Storytelling. The pen is mightier than the sword. Edward Bulwer-Lytton. By assigning symbolic meaning to random shapes and sounds, then using syntactics to assemble them together into a common, topological, or audible structure, humans can exchange information with high levels of precision to communicate their abstract ideas. This capability allows sapiens to do something remarkable, connect their imaginations together to form a single, shared, abstract reality. This concept is illustrated in figure forty two illustration of the metacognitive impact of storytelling forming shared abstract reality. Figure forty two shows how people create and develop common belief systems. Thanks to the innovation of higher-order languages, two or more neocortices with no physical or neural connection can share the exact same symbolic experiences and knowledge, allowing them to think the same things, detect the same patterns, and even interpret the same meaning from mutually exclusive physical sensory inputs. Two brains can't share the same physical sensory input, but they can interpret different sensory inputs the same way. Through higher-order language, Sapiens build shared abstract scenarios within their minds and fill them with emotionally complex and interesting people with multiple layers of mental states, perceptions, beliefs, desires, high-order intentionality, and high degree of theory of mind. Non-physically existent people can be put into places which don't exist, surrounded by creatures and objects which aren't real. Moreover, their actions, motivations, and thought processes can be imbued with conceptually dense, symbolic meaning. From the safety and comfort of their minds, sapiens who know the same higher-order language can experience and explore their imaginary worlds together. They can teach each other useful lessons, explain unsolved mysteries, offer profound insights, and steer sapient brains through quests, crucibles, and puzzles, which allow their hosts to experience the full spectrum of emotion. Using a written form of higher-order language, neocortices can connect together in this way not just across thousands of miles of space, but also across thousands of years of time, communicating asynchronously over timescales which far exceed their hosts' lifespans. Through written language, humans can even share the same abstract experiences with other humans who lived thousands of years before them. The author defines this extraordinary capability as storytelling. For the same reason that sapient brains are extremely gifted at planning and hunting, they're also extremely gifted at storytelling. There is a clear, cognitive link between storytelling and hunting. Both activities rely on precisely the same set of cognitive tools, in other words, high-order intentionality and theory of mind, with only minor differences in their application. This becomes an extremely important concept to note for future discussions about hunting people through their belief systems by nefarious storytelling. There are solid technical and metacognitive grounds for sapiens to have an instinctive fear of, or distrust in, or attraction to, good rhetoricians, for example, politicians and religious leaders. To put it simply, peak storytellers are peak predators. They deserve caution. It has been hypothesized that sapiens' unique ability to think abstractly form symbols, develop higher-order languages, and connect brains via storytelling, is what enabled them to start cooperating at far higher scales than other packs of primates. A famous anthropological theory by Robin Dunbar states that there is a cognitive limit to how many physical features, in other words, patterns, a human brain can memorize. This would imply there is a cognitive limit to how many different faces a single brain can recognize and trust enough to cooperate with. This notional limit, often called Dunbar's number, is estimated to be approximately 150 people. Dunbar's theory offers a viable explanation for why human tribes did not exceed this number for many hundreds of thousands of years prior to the emergence of abstract thought. Despite their big brains and all their excess thinking power, humans simply didn't have the memory to form meaningful relationships with more than 150 people, so they weren't inclined to cooperate at higher scales. Like the single-cell organisms discussed in the previous chapter, the inability to cooperate at higher scales inhibits humans' ability to grow their cost of attack and results in a bounded prosperity trap. Despite their ability to control fire, small nomadic tribes of humans had relatively little advantage. They were not nearly as high on the food chain as modern humans are today. Sapiens were the only species of human to escape the bounded prosperity trap caused by Dunbar's number-induced cooperation limits. And it appears they did it in part by combining abstract thinking, theoretical planning, symbolism, higher-order language, and storytelling together to create shared abstract realities and belief systems which enabled them to trust each other and cooperate at scales which far exceed the physical constraints causing Dunbar's number. Another way to think about storytelling is that it allows sapiens to mentally groom and bond with each other via stories, rather than having to physically groom each other or even spend any time with each other. Hence the deep emotional attachments people form with movie celebrities or other types of story characters. Mutually shared beliefs or stories enable sapiens to transcend the physical constraints of regular grooming to form trusting and cooperative relationships at much larger scale. For example, a single primate is capable of physically grooming one, maybe two other primates at the same time to earn their trust and cooperation. Meanwhile, sapiens can capture the attention and influence the behavior of thousands of other sapiens simultaneously, using nothing more than a story to earn their attention Trust and willingness to cooperate. That same storyteller can get those 1000 people to trust and cooperate with each other by virtue of the fact that they now share the same abstract reality or belief system. Sapiens are unique in comparison to other wild animals because they cooperate together simply because they believe in the same thing, not because they share the same physical experiences. This subtle but extraordinary difference makes sapiens much more capable of mass cooperation at scale. Why? For the simple reason that the ability to believe in the same thing is not constrained by physics, whereas the ability to share the same physically objective experiences together is highly constrained by physics. Storytelling can therefore be thought of as the glue which holds modern societies together. Without that glue, sapiens are both physically and physiologically incapable of cooperating together at levels exceeding small tribes. We literally don't have the time, energy, or memory capacity for it. This means a primary value delivered function of storytelling is to overcome the constraints of shared, objective physical reality. We use our spoken and written stories to bypass the constraints of physics, as well as the constraints of our own bodies, to communicate with each other, inspire each other, cooperate with each other, and achieve things we would otherwise be both physically and psychologically incapable of achieving. If we don't adopt common symbols, languages, stories, and belief systems, and instead relied exclusively on experiential knowledge and memory to cooperate with each other, we would need to have massive budgets of time and memory to develop the experiential knowledge needed to create connections and commit them to memory. We would need comedically large brains, very large appetites, and very long lifespans to achieve a fraction of the cooperation we can achieve by simply using stories. Storytelling functions as a life hack that sapiens unlocked by learning abstract thinking. Thanks to stories, people don't have to rely on interactions with other people to cooperate at scales that are up to 40 million times larger than Dunbar's number. They just need to hear the same stories and adopt the same belief systems. This explains why symbolism is extraordinarily effective at promoting higher levels of cooperation. It gets people to think the same way, believe the same things, and, most importantly, signal to each other that they have the same belief systems to facilitate higher-order cooperation and trust. Humans can use their storytelling abilities to build shared abstract realities which offer satisfying explanations for phenomenon observed in shared objective reality. They can imbue objective physical phenomenon with abstract meaning to make mutual experiences feel more profound and enjoyable. Then, armed with the symbolic meaning of the stories they tell, sapiens can cooperate at scales which far exceed their own physical and physiological capacity. In other words, storytelling is an abstract superpower. Hence why Edward Bulwer-Lytton observed that the pen is mightier than the sword. A more technically accurate way to say the same phrase would be Higher-order, syntactically and semantically complex written language can influence, organize, and direct more unified physical power than a single person swinging a sword can. People can achieve things far beyond their physical limits using the right combination of stories. By simply believing in the same thing, regardless of whether that thing is real or imaginary, Sapiens can sum their power together to achieve extraordinary things like assembling the International Space Station. Rooted at the center of all this achievement is something which didn't even necessarily have to exist. The stories sapiens tell each other to cooperate at massive scale can be, and probably are, fictional. All that matters is that people believe in them. As long as people can stick together by believing in the same imaginary things, they can build the Great Pyramids of Giza. They can literally move mountains. Storytelling is how money and currencies work. Money is nothing more than a belief system, one of many completely fictional stories told by storytellers that people voluntarily choose to believe in. By believing in the same money, in other words, medium for transferring financial information, people can and will cooperate with each other at scales which far exceed their physical and physiological limits. On the flip side, when a money breaks down, cooperation breaks down. If people stop believing in the same money, cooperation comes crashing down. A collapsing money is a collapsing society. It has ended several empires. Because money is a belief system, the manipulation of money, such as when manipulating the supply of money, is technically a form of passive aggressive psychological abuse. People who distort the medium for transferring financial information are systemic predators who prey on people's belief systems eroding their ability to cooperate with each other, and contributing to the collapse of society. The most successful monies have been those which physically constrain this type of systemic exploitation, for example, gold. Adding all these concepts together, we get a comprehensive understanding for why symbols and stories are extremely important to the prosperity of sapiens. Symbols and stories breed common belief systems, and common belief systems have unrivaled success in the animal kingdom at achieving cooperation. By believing in the same stories told by storytellers, humans can cooperate at extraordinary scales which dwarf other species. They can use that power to build pyramids or to impose severe, physically prohibitive costs on attackers. This manner of cooperating via storytelling is fundamentally a dual-use power projection tactic evolved by nature, a way to increase the benefit of attack, increase the cost of attack, and adjust BCRA. To project more physical power, simply sum it together by telling more compelling stories, which motivate people to cooperate at a higher scale by adopting the same belief system. With the right combination of stories, humans can do things they would never otherwise be capable of doing. They can end old empires and build new ones simply by changing what they believe in. A good storyteller can facilitate sapient cooperation at scales which far exceed Dunbar's number because they don't require people to physically experience the same thing. They just require people to hear and believe the same story. Add to this phenomenon the fact that sapiens are extremely intelligent hunters who can control fire and tap into what is effectively an infinite supply of exogenous firepower from the surrounding environment, and it's easy to see why the stories told by sapiens not the sapiens themselves nor the technologies they wield, are extremely effective and asymmetrically valuable power projection tactics. Effective storytelling is a skill that should never be underestimated. Civilizations rise and fall as a direct result of their adopted symbols, stories, and belief systems things which technically don't exist anywhere except within people's collective imaginations. The socio-technical implications of storytelling are simple but profound. Sapiens did not physiologically change after arriving at behavioral modernity to become more capable of memorizing faces. We are equally as cognitively constrained as our ancestors were during the Upper Paleolithic era. In fact, we are probably more constrained. Human brains started to shrink after they started domesticating themselves. The ability for sapiens to cooperate and function on scales up to a nation-state level is therefore derived predominantly from something abstract, which resides exclusively within their imagination. That means things like national strategic security are heavily derived from stories, more than probably anything else. To harness more physical power to increase the cost of attack and lower BCRA, tell persuasive stories. To capture more resources or be a good conqueror, be a good storyteller and hunt humans through their belief systems. Here we begin to see the downside of storytelling. What humans gain in their ability to cooperate with each other, they lose in systemic security. Recall from the previous section that a hunter's job is to decrease their target's cost of attack and increase their BCRA. Storytelling enables people to do this to other people, often without attributability. In other words, no blood trail. With the right stories people will forfeit their physical power or lay down their arms. Sapiens can be domesticated by the stories they believe, and like lambs, they will walk straight into slaughter. It's also possible to feed stories to human populations, which divide them and make them less likely to cooperate. They can be convinced via theology, philosophy, and ideology to forfeit their physical strength for something which only exists in their collective imagination. The bottom line is that the prosperity and survival of the sapient species depends upon the stories they choose to believe in. All of our combined achievements are irrevocably linked to our stories and combined belief systems. What a population chooses to believe has very real, very meaningful consequences on their ability to survive and prosper, so it is extraordinarily important for them to pick the right stories and belief systems. Section 4.4.5 Abstract Thinking Application number 7 Solving Physically Unverifiable Mysteries Another useful application of storytelling is creating explanations for phenomenon that are physically impossible to verify via physical sensory inputs or experiential knowledge. The most common example of this is explaining what happens to sapiens after death. Upper Paleolithic sapiens came to believe in the same afterlife because of storytelling. The primary storytellers of this time were shamans who convinced their tribes the afterlife was a desirable place to be. Over countless years and countless campfires, shamans expanded on their stories, specifying details about gateways to the afterlife. They added more details about how they can access the gateway to the afterlife and even communicate with deceased ancestors on the other side. Here, the first signs of abstract power began to emerge. An easy way to tell if human fossils are from a time after the emergence of abstract thinking and storytelling is to look for signs of a belief in the afterlife. Most animals show nothing more than casual interest in the bodies of their dead, but storytelling humans who lived within the past 50,000 years demonstrate substantial interest in the bodies of their dead. Signs of a collective belief in the afterlife appear in the human fossil record at approximately the same time as other signs of abstract thinking and self-consciousness. Belief in the afterlife is therefore one of the oldest known human belief systems. Preparation for the afterlife is noteworthy because it demonstrates an understanding of one's self in relation to time, as well as indicates a time preference for future self, noting that the concept of future is, in itself, an abstract construct which humans struggle to understand. Over current self. Sapiens not only started to make a conscious distinction between themselves and others within their environment but they also started to make a conscious distinction between their current selves and future selves, particularly with respect to living self and unliving self. Behaviorally modern Paleolithic sapiens started making careful preparations for their future selves via ceremonies like burying rituals. They indicated their time preference for the future by virtue of their sacrifices in the present. The dead would be buried with valuable resources the tribe needs for survival, a self-sacrificial practice which makes no rational sense except for those who believe in and have a higher preference for an imaginary future self, living in a place after death. Through Paleolithic burial practices, we can see a signature characteristics of behavioral modernity, making meaningful sacrifices for something completely imaginary, their future self. Section 4.4.6 Abstract Thinking Application number 8 Developing Abstract Constructs and Belief Systems The great thing about bugs is that nobody gives a shit if you kill them. Kenny the Talking Gun, high on life. Upper Paleolithic shaman storytellers could answer questions about the afterlife, which other members of the tribe couldn't even think to ask. These shamans could ostensibly communicate to tribal ancestors years after death, giving shamans a very high social value. Shamans could also imbue tribal activities with symbolic meaning, making tribal activities seem more blessed and profound. Shamans who were particularly skilled at storytelling could persuade their peers to believe that a person's hunting and gathering actions represented much more to the tribe than just the act of physically capturing resources. It represented something important, or something even more novel, something ideologically good. The emergence of the concept of good also meant sapiens could start engaging in activities that would qualify as being ideologically bad, giving rise to the development of abstract constructs we now call ethics and morals. As much as a sapien's hubris might compel them to believe otherwise, there may not be anything objectively good or bad about anything we experience in shared objective physical reality. It is possible that our hyperactive brains are just assigning meaning To objectively meaningless things. But if we assume, for the sake of argument, that there is such a thing as objective good, then there's still nothing to suggest that humans are special creatures in the universe who are uniquely qualified to define what good means. Far more intelligent interstellar travellers who visit Earth could have much different opinions about the definition of good than humans do and we might not agree with it in the same way that we already don't agree with each other about what good means. A common plotline in movies. One possible explanation for why humans subscribe to moral, ethical, theological, and ideological belief systems is to provide abstract explanations for their natural instincts. As discussed previously, Sapiens have an incredible capacity for using their imagination to detect patterns and come up with viable explanations for unsolvable mysteries. Well, natural instincts have a clear pattern of behavior across many generations and are quite mysterious. So it makes sense that humans would use abstract thinking to produce satisfying explanations, For why they repeatedly feel compelled to behave in certain ways. Ethics and morals provide these logical and satisfying abstract explanations. For example, people tend to believe that the reason why sapiens don't like the idea of killing other sapiens is because it's morally, ethically, or ideologically bad. But at the same time, The disinclination to kill members of the same species is a common natural instinct shared by multiple species across multiple different animal classes, especially pack animals, which appears to have developed over hundreds of millions of years preceding human consciousness. Obvious existential reasons explain why less fratricidal pack animals would survive better in the wild than highly fratricidal pack animals. Therefore, the belief that killing people is immoral could just as easily be described as an abstract explanation for natural instincts and natural selection. People who aren't instinctively disinclined to kill their peers don't survive to pass on their genes as much as people instinctively disinclined to kill their peers. Abstract thoughts about morals, ethics, and ideologies can also be used to offer satisfying justifications for behavior which goes against our natural instincts too. To illustrate this, we can revisit the previous discussion about the double standard of human predation. Many sapiens have no trouble preying on fish, shellfish, and insects in sometimes brutal and unforgiving ways because these animals do not communicate pain and suffering the same way mammals do. The same person who would never cut the throat of a cow, pig, or chicken they eat has no problem killing an intrusive spider or going fishing at the local pond. For some reason, humans go to great lengths to avoid the discomfort of killing and injuring other mammals, typically choosing to outsource killing or predation to specialized workforces. The author has direct experience with this as both an active-duty service member as well as the heir to a beef cattle farm. Ironically, the same thing that makes humans extraordinarily good hunters, their high order of intentionality, theory of mind, and ability to read the minds of their prey, tends to make them feel prone to feeling guilty about their predatory behavior. Predatory guilt is a unique trait of behaviorally modern sapiens. Practically every other apex predator in the wild does not appear to feel as guilty about their predatory behavior as people do, likely because other animals are physiologically incapable of it. It takes a large, power-hungry, and hyperactive neocortex to develop the high-order intentionality and theory of mind required to sufficiently imagine the pain and suffering that another animal is going through enough to feel guilty about contributing to it. Mammalian predators can certainly detect when their mammalian prey are in stress thanks to their shared communication protocols, screaming and contorted faces. But most predators are far less capable of viscerally imagining the fear, anxiety, and trauma experienced by their prey in comparison to humans. Behaviorally modern sapiens are hyper-aware of these emotions. A human predator's uncanny ability to read the minds of their prey makes them effortlessly capable of envisioning the stress they cause, which ironically, stresses the human out in the process. As a result, most humans like to, one, Outsource their predation and killing to a select group of people who can endure that stress, or two, use their abstract thinking skills to justify it or create belief systems to reduce or avoid it. A popular anthropological theory posits that humans started utilizing their abstract thinking skills to develop imaginary justifications and belief systems to reconcile the emotional discomfort of being predatory murderous, and fratricidal. Again, these are common behaviors in nature, but humans are uncommonly empathetic. Some theorize that this need for emotional reconciliation was a leading contributing factor to the rapid adoption of theistic religions following the domestication of animals. The theory posits that Neolithic humans adopted abstract belief systems where they perceived themselves to be gods and rulers of nature because it offered them a way to emotionally reconcile the trauma of entrapping and slaughtering domesticated animals by the billions. It's simply easier to justify the massive-scale enslavement and slaughter of animals if people believe animals exist to serve their human masters. The argument is that sapiens started believing in humanoid gods to alleviate their cognitive dissonance and emotionally reconcile their physical and systematic abuse of the animals they were domesticating. Irrigating large amounts of rain-watered land requires the entrapment and enslavement of aurochs to create plow-pulling pack animals like oxen. Feeding densely populated areas requires massive scale entrapment, enslavement, and slaughtering of animals like boars, jungle fowl, and aurochs to produce the bacon we eat for breakfast, the chicken we eat for lunch, and the beef we eat for dinner. In other words, running a modern, civilized, agrarian society involves a lot of humans working with animals, forming trusting relationships with them, bonding with them, betraying that trust, and then killing them to feed their meat to strangers. Mammals squint their eyes, tense their faces, scream and cry aloud, as they are continuously bred by humans to be imprisoned, corralled, whipped and slaughtered at massive scale. For empathetic predators with a powerful neocortex that can empathize with that pain and suffering, it's a hard business to be in many people can't handle it. The author does not intend to sound self-righteous or judgmental. To repeat, he is both a military officer and heir to a beef cattle farm. The goal of this discussion is to practice being as technically valid, intellectually honest, and amoral as possible. It's hard to dedicate one's life to our modern agrarian lifestyle Without being tempted by abstract belief systems which claim that sapiens are above other animals, or that somehow another animal's pain and suffering isn't as bad as we think it is because they are less intelligent than we are. These belief systems are attractive because they help people reconcile their predatory behaviour, but that doesn't necessarily make them true. It could just be a coping mechanism that, ironically, enables humans to be more predatory and destructive. Once people have adopted to the characteristically Neolithic belief that sapiens have transcended nature and animals exist to serve them, it's not a major leap of cultural evolution to believe that gods exist, or that these gods have a distinctively humanoid shape. An easy way to cope with the domestication of animals is by believing that we are the gods. This line of thinking would explain why signs of theological beliefs in the human fossil record explode after agriculture. As Foster notes, artwork changes from humans living amongst animals, running alongside packs of free-roaming caribou, to cracking whips over the backs of their entrapped, genetically deformed, docile servants. Scenes change from sapiens living within nature to humans living above nature. Humanoid shapes start sitting on thrones physically isolated from the wild and looking down upon it. By the time written language emerged, sapiens had thousands of years of experience believing in gods and looking down on nature. This alone explains why the basis of most moral, ethical, and theological philosophies look down on nature too, especially the killing, and encourage humans not to behave like wild animals. The implicit assumption of these assertions is that the behavior of wild animals is somehow bad. The lion who kills the pack's cubs to keep the bloodline pure, or the squirrel who eats her babies to avoid starvation it's perceived as ideologically bad behavior. The act of being physically aggressive or using physical power to settle disputes, manage resources, and establish dominance hierarchies like wild animals do, is asserted to be bad even though sapiens have practically always been physically aggressive and have practically always used physical power to settle their disputes, manage their resources, and establish their dominance hierarchies, hence 10,000 years of warfare. The point of this section is to illustrate that theology, philosophy, and ideology are highly subjective constructs, which emerged after sapiens became gifted at thinking abstractly. If our morals and ethics weren't highly subjective, we probably wouldn't have theological, philosophical, and ideological disagreements. Therefore, although we like to use our ideologies to make bold assertions that we are somehow uniquely qualified to know what right is, an intellectually honest and humble person should recognize that it may not be objectively true that sapiens have miraculously discovered a metaphysically transcendent, ontologically superior, or causally efficacious capacity for good and bad. It could simply be that sapiens have oversized, overpowered, and hyperactive neocortices optimized for abstract thinking, combined with a lot of spare time on their hands to pontificate about right and wrong after they outsource their predation and killing to other people.